the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. John 1, and we'll read the verses 1 through 18. This is in connection with Lord's Day 13, which has to do with the title of the Lord Jesus as the Son of God. John 1, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This this was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So far, the Word of God. As we reflect on this, let's sing together from Psalm 43, stanza 3. Every Sunday in the afternoon service, we turn to the basics of the Christian faith, And we use the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide for that study. And so this afternoon we find ourselves in Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and that's on page 528 of your books of praise. There the question is, why is he called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God. Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Why do you call Him our Lord? Because He has ransomed us body and soul from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with His precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us His own possession. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the names of the Lord Jesus, the name Jesus, as well as the title Christ. And I've been making the point that it's, it's important to know the names and the meaning of the names because the names clue us into who Jesus is and also what he came in order to do. The name Jesus means Savior, which shows he came in order to save, not ultimately in order to teach us or in order to, to be an example for us, though he did all do those things, but ultimately to save us. The name Christ also, it's a title and it has significance. It certainly did in the day when, when, when the disciples gave him that title and called him the Christ. And it's important today also to recognize what are the roles that the Christ had to play. So, so the name Jesus Christ, as we saw, is itself a confession about who he is and what he came to do. Well, this week we're, we're here to look at the probably the most controversial of all of the names of Jesus. And, and that is the one he also, also often gave himself, which is the name the Son of God. The Son of God. It's a controversial name. Jews and Muslims reject that name outright. They consider it blasphemy. In the Quran, it's emphasized over and over that God did not and, and could not ever have a son, and that it's even blasphemy to even suggest that God had a son. And even among many who call themselves Christians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Arians in, in times past, they have all said that Jesus, though he uses the title, is not actually the Son of God, but he's only a divine-like creature, almost God, but not quite. He's God's first creation, but not God himself, and certainly not the Son of God. It's a controversial title. And it does leave for us some difficult questions, also in light of a profession of faith. We read from John that that the Word is the Son of God, and that He also gave to those who believe the right to become children of God. What does that mean? That He Himself is the Son of God, and that we are then children of God. Now obviously, when, when Jesus is called the Son of God, it cannot mean the same thing as it does for, for human fathers and sons. So it leaves us asking, why does Scripture use this title? What's the point? What's it seeking to, to communicate? What does it mean for God to have a son? Well, interesting, interestingly, one of the points of confusion for, for many uh, Muslims as well as other branches of Christianity is that they understood that title literally. In, in fact, Muhammad rejected the idea many times in the Quran that, that God had a son. And when you look at the details, you discover he believed that Christians taught that, that the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Virgin Mary. And that the Father and the Virgin Mary had a son, Jesus. They, that's, that's in the Quran that they, they believed that. And you can't blame them, of course, for thinking that given the way that many Christians have worshipped Mary as if she herself is God. And if that's what you think of Jesus as the Son of God, if that's what you mean, that title certainly is blasphemous. 
God did not have a son with Mary in that sense. That is blasphemy indeed. But then it still leaves us needing to know what does the title mean? If it's such a controversial and and misleading, perhaps, title, why does Jesus use it of himself? In what sense is he the Son of God? And not only the Son of God, but in our text in John 1, we read even the only begotten Son of God. And that's a phrase that you also find in the Apostles' Creed. It's taken right out of the Gospel of John. Twice in this chapter, also in John 3, famous verse, God gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. So what does this title mean? What does it intend to teach us? The Quran is is correct. God did not and cannot literally beget a son, at least not in the same sense that, that human fathers beget sons. So why is He? Called that. Well, let's turn first to, to Scripture, to our text in John 1. Each of the Gospels, it's interesting, each of them have a, a different place where they begin. It's one of those interesting features that shows also their unique goals. Matthew starts with the genealogy of Christ going back to Adam. Mark starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. Luke starts with the birth of of John the Baptist, John starts somewhere else altogether. John starts with God all the way back in eternity. And you see that in John 1, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now that Word, as you read on, is very obviously a person. It's referred to with the pronoun he. And that person, very obviously, you discover, refers to the Lord Jesus. That becomes clear very quickly in the chapter. But John uses this kind of introduction to set up some of the major themes of of his gospel and to teach us profound lessons about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Almost all of the major themes in John's Gospel are scrunched into those first 18 verses. And you can find almost all of them there. Themes of life being created. Themes of darkness and light in conflict. And another theme is there as well. It's in verse 9. That's the theme of children of God. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But, this is in verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. People who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It's a profound thought that since the coming of Christ, those who have believed in Him have become children of God. Sons and daughters of God, born not of flesh, but of the will of God Himself. We come here, many families, to witness a profession of faith. And for the most part, families born of, of flesh. We, we come as brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents. But ultimately, we come here as a church not to see what we have created, but what God has created. God has given birth, as it were, to His own sons and, and daughters. And then you see this theme again in, in verse 14 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's, here's a mystery then. Those who believe become children of God. And for that to happen, the Word, which is a person we've seen, which has come into the world, the Word had to, had to come into the world so that we could see His glory. By seeing His glory, we also become children of God. So you notice there are, there are two groups of children then. There are the children, those who believe, and then there is the only Son, the Word that was with God in the beginning. Now the word that, that's used there for the only Son is a very important word. I'll read it in the Greek just so you can hear it. The, the word is monogenes, and it's usually translated as only begotten. And what it refers to is a son or daughter who is an only child, or at least a totally unique child. So actually in Hebrews 11, it says that Abraham offered his monogenes son, his only child, on, on the altar. Except that we know that Isaac was not actually the only child. He had another son, Ishmael. But Isaac was the full son. He was a distinct Son, He was in a category all of its own. Ishmael lived on the outer fringes of that family. He was the son of Abraham's slave. Isaac was the unique son, the only begotten son of Abraham, the legitimate heir of the promise. And that's what the word here refers to as well. Now, some of you have grown up, perhaps, with a, a King James Bible or a New King James uh, translation of the Bible. And those translations are, are more consistent than the ESV in, in translating this as only begotten. So, verse 14 says, in, in the New King James, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The ESV just says the only Son. The New King James says the only begotten. The reason the ESV drops the, the, the whole notion of being begotten is because it's seeking to avoid the confusion of how exactly did God beget. And that's not the point here in John. The point is not on the begotten nature, but the onlyness of the Son. He is the only Son, a unique Son of the Father. So either translation is fine, but that idea of unique sonship needs to be there. So here's the point. This person, this, this word who is with God in the beginning, is the eternal, unique Son of God. And through Him then, by seeing His glory and believing, we also then become children together with Him, children of God. Now, I'll bring this together all in a moment, but just jump with me to verse 18 as well. And that's where you see that word ha occur one more time. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, that's the same word that's used there, the only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Now, that's the same word in the Greek, but the ESV again translates it as the only God, where the New King James says the only begotten of God. And let me just also throw the NIV into there for, for the sake of completeness. The, the NIV actually does the best job on, on this verse. The, the New NIV 
says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is God, has made him known. So here's the point. We didn't go through all those translations for nothing. The point that John is making is this. Jesus not only came from the Father's side, but shares the Father's own nature in a way that no other Son of God does. Jesus is unique, and so He alone is qualified to show what God is like. By looking at Him, you will see God, and you will see the glory of God, and become children of God. He alone is qualified to reveal the Father. The Lord Jesus said it himself in John 14. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now that title is still shrouded in in some mystery. Still, you wonder, what does it mean that he is the only begotten or unique son of the Father? It's important to understand that that title does not refer to the exact same thing as human fathers and sons. That should be obvious, but of course that was one of the points that that caused stumbling among some of the early Christians and among Muslims as well. And many Christians as a result are also uncomfortable with that title, that Jesus is the Son of God. It seems almost inappropriate or, or blasphemous to say something like that. But it's not what the title means. So the question we should be asking is, what is this title intending to teach us? In other words, what is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? What does that have in common with human fathers and sons such that Jesus would use that title of himself? There's, there's a teaching element in there. What is it that the Lord seeks to teach us? Now, obviously, it isn't a perfect analogy to human fathers and sons. There are differences between human father-son relationships and that within God. Yet there are also parallels. Let me list a few here. Uh, One is the parallel of uh, the reality of Two-ness between any human father and son. There are, there are obviously two. There's the father and there's the son. And that same idea is there in the Trinity. There, there's a, a duality, a two-ness within God. Or some people like to say it as an, an IU relationship within God. It's not meant as a logical contradiction. God is not one and three in the same way. He's one in one sense three in another sense, but there's an IU relationship within God. Another parallel, origin. In, in any human father and son relationship, the son has his origin in the father. And, and that's certainly also true in the Trinity. The son comes from the father. Hebrews 1 says he is the radiance of the Father's glory. And the picture there is of of the literal sun in the sky as it radiates out. And and the light and the heat radiates out of the sun. And Hebrews 1 says in the same way, if you look at Christ, you see the radiance of God. He, He radiates out the Father's glory. He has his origin in the Father just as as the light and heat have their origin in the Son. Now that being said, there are a couple differences between human and father, human fathers and sons with respect to origin. A few points where that analogy breaks down. One, one big difference is that 
human fathers and sons are separable. They're, they're completely distinct. That's not the case with God the Father and God the Son. A human father will derive from his father's nature, but he's still in a, a, a distinct being. That's not the case with God. They are still also one. Another difference is human sons and daughters, their, their origin comes after their father. You're born after your parents. Your existence begins later. That's not the case with God. That's where the, the analogy of the, the sun, uh, again, in the sky, that tends to be helpful because the light and heat constantly radiate out. And so it is with the son and the father. He's constantly coming from the father. But the point still remains. The language of father and son not only teaches that there's a two-ness, an IU relationship, but that the son has his origin in the Father. There's a third parallel, and that's a parallel of likeness, or, or you say resemblance between Father and Son. And we know this from, human, from the human world. Uh, sons bear their Father's image. You might sometimes say that. That boy is the spitting image of his dad. And so it is also of God. The Son is the image of the Father. That's certainly the idea you see in, in verse 14. It says, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. In other words, the Father's glory can be seen in the Son. Now, obviously, that's not referring to, to an external physical resemblance, as if Jesus you know, physically looks like his Father, because the Father is spirit. He does not have a body. But Christ the Son, and here's the point, Christ the Son reflects the Father's glory. He bears the Father's wisdom and the Father's righteousness and His holiness and His goodness. He's not less glorious than His Father or less worthy than His Father of being worshipped. If you have seen the Son's glory, then you've seen the Father's glory. And if you've seen the Father's glory, you would immediately recognize the Son. And you can think again of, of, of the earthly sphere. Here on earth, every father hopes that his Son will be like him, and even more, that his Son will surpass him. That's even uh, any father among you can understand that. You, you desire that your children will surpass you in, in every way. And now with God, of course, it's impossible to be surpassed, but the language of sonship teaches the same, the same principle. The son is everything that the father is. He's, he's not less than the father in any respect. Hebrews 1 again says, the son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's, he's exactly the same in nature as the Father. And stop, we can stop and think about what a, what a glorious statement that really is. You get those occasional statements in, in Scripture that speak about the reality within God. And when you come across them, you have to just stop and, and reflect on what a profound and glorious truth it's teaching. He is, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So that's three things at least. There's the IU relationship within God. There's the origin the Son has from the Father and the likeness 
that he has from the Father. And there's one more important thing to, to mention here that this language of Father-Son teaches us. And then I want to turn and see why this matters for us also on a day when we, when we witness a profession of faith. The language of Father and Son also teaches us that there is a relationship between the Father and Son, and it's a relationship of love. It's a relationship that's similar then to, to human fathers and sons. So, so the father-son language speaks to the, the love that exists within God the Father and God the Son. It's a profound thought because we know, of course, God is, is one. But within God, there is a relationship of love between that I and, and you. And so you, you see this in, in Matthew 3, for example, when Jesus was baptized, God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You see in that the, the language of, of human fathers and sons. What father hasn't said to his son or of his son, hey, that's, that's my boy. And, and you see the same concept in, in Matthew 3. God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I delight in whom I am well pleased. It's the language of fatherhood. And it's an amazing and it's a profound truth. If you think about it, before the the universe was ever created, before time itself even existed, God the Father and God the Son were already overflowing in love for one another. And we we can't quite imagine how it's all possible, how God can, can have love within himself, for himself. It's part of the mystery of the Trinity. But what this, teaches is, uh, what this teaches us is God did not create you or create the world in order to have someone he could love. He didn't create us because he was lonely. God created us because he was overflowing with love. He created us to share with us that love and so that we could also experience the love that God already had within himself. So there's that relationship of love. There's also a submissive element in in that relationship, and that's also a parallel to human fathers and sons. There's a relationship of authority and, conversely, submission between the father and the son. In, In John 14, the Lord Jesus says, "...the words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority." But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Or John 5, verse 19, the Lord says, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So there's a relationship within God of authority and conversely submission between the Father and the Son. And that's a beautiful thing also to reflect on. I've made the point already that the Son is, is the exact imprint of God's nature, so He's no less worthy of worship, no less glorious than the Father, and yet He still submits to the Father. And, and that's, that means then when we practice submission, as, as all of us have to do to different levels, 
it isn't at all something that lowers our worth. It's a beautiful thing to remember also between husbands and wives. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. But just as the son submits to the father and is no less worthy or glorious because of it, so also when wives do submit to their husbands, there isn't a difference there of glory or worth, but a difference of, of role and submission and authority. And so, by submitting to one another, we're imitating Christ's own submission to His Father. So all of these things are are pieces of what it means when Jesus calls Himself the Son of God. It's important to understand, it's not a literal term. He's not a biological Son of God. And, And that can be misleading, even in the Catechism it says He's the only natural Son of God. And we wouldn't want to think from that that, that there's a natural relationship as there is here. It means he's, he's of the same nature of God. That's what the word there, there means. And so it's important to understand that it's not a biological term because such things don't apply to God. That's what many Muslims and many Christians have found offensive about this term, but it isn't actually there in the term at all. Now, is there a mystery in that relationship? For sure, there is. Can we fully understand what it's like? No, we certainly cannot. But we can appreciate the language of father and son and learn things about that relationship from, from that use of words because Scripture uses those, those terms. So why, have, why does all of this matter for us. That's how I want to finish our time this afternoon. Let's go back to John 1 and looking here at verses 9 through 13. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, or the flesh, but of God. To understand this, Jesus is what we've called the only begotten or only unique Son of God, sharing God's own nature. But those who who belong to Him, it says those who believe in His name, He has given us also the right to become children of God alongside Him, which means they share that same relationship that God the Son has with God the Father. It's a profound and it's an amazing truth. Jesus, as as the Son who has related to God in love from eternity, since before time existed, is inviting those who believe in Him to become children of God in much the same way, to join into that same relationship of love that has always existed since eternity. You can see this really clearly in the Lord Jesus' prayer in John 17. He says, I I do not pray for these only, but for all who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let me just continue one more sentence. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know 
that you sent me, and, and listen to this, and loved them even as you loved me. So here's the amazing truth then, also as we witness a profession of faith. Through Christ, we inherit the gift of sonship alongside the Lord Jesus himself. We get to be, as it were, brothers and sisters of Christ. He's siblings, you could say, of Christ, together with him under the Father, enjoying the same love that he himself has enjoyed from eternity. So if you belong to Christ, even if you don't deserve the Father's love, which none of us do, the Father still loves you even as much as he loves Christ his Son, as much as he loves Christ himself. Again, think of the well-known words of John 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. One more verse, Romans 8. He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? So the father-son relationship with God is certainly a mystery, but it's a mystery that you and I get to inherit. It's a beautiful mystery, and it's a reality that we will enjoy forever as we believe in him. And so you can see what a glorious thing this is then that we're about to witness uh, as these young people do their profession of faith. As John wrote, to those who believe, he gave the right to be children of God. These three young people are, are coming here to declare publicly that they are among those who believe, which means they are among the children of God. They're not born of flesh or of the will of man, or they are, but it's irrelevant. The far greater and more glorious thing is that they're children born of God, born of the Spirit. And that's something they already are now. It's not just a future reality. Think of 1 John 3, verse 2, that says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So, all that we experience even now, we experience as the children of God, including the losses and the grief and the suffering that God, our Father, has brought into our life because He loves us as much as He loves Christ Himself. Even though we don't deserve that love, He works for our good because we belong to Him, just as any father would work for the good of his own children. Now, our, our minds almost want to, to, to resist that because we find it so unfathomable that, that the righteous God would, would love people like us as much as He loves His own Son. We, we want to push back against that and say, no, that's not, that's not right. You shouldn't love me as much as you love Christ. But Christ came into the world precisely so that the Father could love us as he loves himself, as he loves the Lord Jesus. So, we, so that we who believe in him would become not just servants of God, not just members of his kingdom, not just citizens, but his own children whom he loves. And the Holy Spirit then that God has given to us seals 
that sonship. The, the young people were asked if they sensed the Spirit in, in their lives and, and if they sensed the testimony of the Spirit as they believed the Gospel. And, and, and they do, and it's a seal of their belonging to, to Christ. Many theologians have often asked, you know, in that, that intimate relationship of the Father and the Son, it's such a unique relationship. What's the role then for the Spirit? The Father and Son have loved each other since eternity, and that's something that's obviously unique about fathers and sons. Where does, where does the Spirit fit into that? And the best answer that, that I have seen, and it's supported by, by, by Scripture, is that the Spirit has the role of mediating the love between the Father and the Son and to anyone else who also belongs to to the Father. Because the Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son, He mediates, He carries the love of the Father to the Son and back and also to to us. That's very clearly the Spirit's role with us. Romans 5, verse 5, Our hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We'll come back to that verse in a few months a few months from now when we come to the role of the Holy Spirit himself. But reflect on that truth now. We're already now God's children. And God already now communicates to us his love through the Holy Spirit. So profession of faith then is not just a beautiful family thing to witness, though it certainly is. But it's a glorious reality to consider because what we're looking at here, what we're looking back on, is something that God has accomplished that none of us, not even the best fathers or mothers, could could ever have accomplished. God has made these young people his own children. And so we come here to witness what God has done, what the Spirit has done and continues to do in their lives. Amen.